Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, good morning, church. Mark chapter 2, picking up where we left off a couple weeks ago, verse 13 through 28. Now, last week, we jumped ahead, and we got the gist of the story, right? We went all the way ahead to, Matthew, uh, to Mark chapter 16 and uh, looked at the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Well, we're going to go right back to where we left off in Mark chapter 2. And so this morning, as you're turning there, I got a question for you. Uh, have you ever said, we've got to get back to the basics? I mean, this back to the basics mentality, it's, it's this act of stressing simplicity and the adherence to fundamental principles, right? Maybe you got off track some, somewhere along the way. Maybe things aren't working out the way you want them to. And so you've said, look, I'm just going to have to get back to the basics. Well, when I was 12 years old, I went out and visited my father who lived in Bakersfield, California. And so I would go and spend the summers with him. And one summer, my dad introduced me to something that has plagued me ever since. I mean, I, I've carried this with me all the way into my adult life, and, and it's been really hard. It's, it's hurt my pride and my self-esteem, and it's even hurt my wallet. It's the game of golf, right? The game of golf is so difficult, and I play just often enough to stay consistently bad, right? So I play two, three, four times a year, and I'm not getting any better. Uh, I'm not really getting any worse. It's just pretty much the same. Well, there are times when I get up there and I'm, I'm playing bad. I'm playing, you know, to the right and to the left and to the right and to the left. And I'm, I'm losing my golf ball into the woods and all types of things happen. And I get over there and I, I, I get over the ball and I say, all right, Jeff, it's time to get back to the basics, back to the fundamental principles of what you know to do. Keep your head down, swing smooth and strike the ball first, right? These are the fundamental principles. Well, there's a there's a pro golfer. His name was Ben Hogan. And he had this five principles to having a, a good golf swing. And at the very end, he says this, reverse every natural instinct and do the opposite of what you are inclined to do. And you will probably come very close to having a perfect golf swing. So basically what he says is, look, everything you think you should do, just reverse that because you're going to get in your brain and you're going to get too many things going. And all of a sudden you're going to have to get back to the basics, back to the fundamental principles. Well, that's exactly what scripture tells us. Sometimes we think we know what we're doing. And this is why Paul would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There's so many things that wrap our minds around, that get us off track, that make us go to the right and to the left. And, and Paul would say this to Timothy, look, flee the youthful lust. Flee the things that, you know, you think are natural for you. And pretty much do the opposite. You know, pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace along with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. So this morning, as we get back into Mark chapter 2, I want you to see that we're going to see some fundamental back to basics of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Let me pray for us as we jump into God's word. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you that your word uh, gives us a light to our path that we can learn from you. But God, we thank you most of all that it reveals who you are. So as we get into your word, Lord, reveal to us your character and your love and your presence and your mercy and your grace. Father, that we would come to you and we would find righteousness and faith and hope and love. And we would pursue you with a pure heart. Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, speak to us this morning in Christ's name. Amen. First thing I want you to see is ministry 
and fundamentals. The ministry and the fundamentals. So what happens as soon as you start following Jesus? What are the fundamentals to following? What are the fundamentals to ministry? And so in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, as we read through this, you're going to see Jesus call a man by the name of Levi, Matthew. He was a tax collector. So let's read. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Let's keep reading verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a, phys- uh, of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." So we see this very beginning, Jesus calling Matthew, and we see that he's reclining at the table. He's hanging out with sinners. Now, you you can't miss miss this. The fundamentals of ministry happen when we are hanging with sinners. I love how Danny Agin says this. There's a simple principle here. To reach the lost, you have to be with the lost, and you must share the gospel. You want to know what the fundamentals of ministry are? The fundamentals of ministry are this. Reach the lost. Be with the lost. Share the gospel. Sometimes we get so caught up in all the extras of Christianity that we neglect the fundamentals. That's when we wonder why things seem off or are not working as, they, as we know they should. Maybe we've added so many things to our Christianity that we've lost out on what Jesus has called us to do in the first place, which is to follow him. And if we follow him, then we're going to find ourselves reaching the lost. If we follow him, we're going to find ourselves being with the lost. And if we follow him, we're going to find ourselves sharing the gospel, the good news. Look at what 14 says. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, to get this, this is, this is controversial. Tax collectors, they were the worst of sinners. They were considered worse than prostitutes. They were excommunicated from the synagogues. If they touched you, you and your house was considered unclean. Tax collectors were traitors. They were helping fund the Roman oppression. They were taking your money, your goods, and even your daughters for Roman payment. Not only that, but they would collect more than was expected so they could take the extra for themselves. So they were getting rich off the Roman oppression. You you think about this. Think about a neighbor being a traitor, going in and taking money from you. They're robbing you. They're taking more than is even required. And if you can't pay, they're taking your goods, your property, and even a family member, your daughter. I mean, you can understand why the tax collectors were hated. People couldn't stand tax collectors. But Jesus calls one to follow him, Levi. He says, follow me. So you have to ask the question, why does Jesus ask such a person to follow him? I mean, don't you think Jesus would ask more righteous people, people who have their life together, people who aren't notorious sinners, people who aren't tax collectors, people who aren't robbing people? Don't you think that he would ask those types of people to follow him? No, he asked sinners. You know why? Because Jesus sees in us what no one else can see. 
Jesus knows who you really are. He knows your heart because Jesus sees sinners in need of salvation, because Jesus sees the sick in need of saving, because Jesus sees who we were intended to be, image bearers who reflect his glory, not who we have become. You see, Jesus doesn't see people as grotesque and undeserving of grace. No, Jesus calls us to follow him even if we are the worst of sinners because he sees who we can be in him. His righteousness, his sanctification taking place in our life. Why does Jesus ask such a person to follow him? Because we are not defined by our sin, but by how our Savior sees us. Some of us need to hear that this morning. We need to hear the fact that if you are in Christ, you are not defined by your sin, but by the work of your Savior. You're defined by the saving work of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross in your place, paying the penalty of your sins, and then rising again on the third day, defeating death, showing you that your sins really are forgiven. You're not defined by the sins that are in your life. You're defined by your Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 15, And he reclined at the table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So this guy, Levi, Matthew, right? He followed him, and he's walked away from his income, his crooked, corrupt job, and he invites all his friends over to his house to meet Jesus. I mean, the fundamentals of ministry is as soon as he meets Jesus, he wants all of his friends to meet Jesus. That's the fundamentals of ministry. You want to know what God calls you to do when you follow him? He calls you to introduce him to those that, that don't know you, that don't know him. You know friends, you know family members that need to know Jesus. Look at how Luke puts it in Luke chapter 5, 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. Basically, Levi threw a party, right? He threw a party that was full of sinners. When's the last time you went to a party full of sinners? Don't, don't answer that, right? Like that might not be something you want to say out loud in, in your home right there. But this guy... He did what he, knew how to, what he knew how to do. He had the money. He had the resources. He had the house. He knew how to throw a party, and he knew how to invite sinners. And that's exactly what he did because he wanted them to know Jesus. You see, in order for the fundamentals of ministry to work, to reach the lost, to be with the lost, and to share the gospel, you can't think of yourself as better than someone else. At some point, we all get off track. We have to get back to the basics. At some point, we become such um, secluded in our Christianity that we've, we begin to think that we're better. We're spiritually superior than people who don't know Jesus. And so we don't hang out with them. We get in our holy huddles and we seclude ourselves. When's the last time you had a house full of sinners and you had them there because you wanted to introduce them to Jesus? That's the fundamentals of ministry. Verse 15, again, and he was reclined at the table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now I want you to understand this. They're sharing a meal, and it's not a formal meal, but it's, it's a meal of fellowship. He is relaxed. Jesus is reclining. Now, I understand that, that uh, kitchen tables back in those days looked a little bit different than they do now. There's not chairs around them, and, and everyone would kind of recline at this table that was really low to the ground. But just picture this for a second. Jesus is reclining. The tax collectors and the sinners 
are all reclining. They're all laid out, being relaxed. They're being themselves. They're actually comfortable around each other. Jesus was comfortable around many tax collectors and sinners. Now, have you ever gone over to someone's house and you went in and sat down at the table, but you felt like you were out of place? Kind of, it was uncomfortable. Maybe it was a very formal setting. You sat down and you saw all these forks and all these spoons and you thought, which one's the salad fork? Am I going to go out of order? Like, which side do I put my glass on when I'm drinking? What do I do? Don't, don't, don't chew with your mouth open. Like, you're really worried about all of these rules. But what if you go over to a friend's house? What if you go over to someone's house that you know really well, you've been over there hundreds of times, and you walk in, and your friend says, hey, make yourself at home. So you go into the kitchen. You know where the, the, the cupboard full of goodies is. You know where the bags of chips are. You know where all the, the, the little Debbies are. And so you go in, you grab one, you grab yourself a Coke. You come in, you sit down on their couch, and you recline. You relax. You're comfortable. You begin to eat, and you begin to fellowship. And it's natural. Why? Because that's your friend. Now, I want you to understand this. This is how comfortable Jesus is with tax collectors and sinners. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's not out of place when he goes to their house. He doesn't feel awkward. He doesn't feel like he needs to put on a show. No, he feels like he can be himself. I love what Matthew's gospel says in eleven nineteen. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, get this. Jesus' love and friendship towards sinners was so evident that other people talked about it, and they were even to the point of being offended by it. Jesus was such a friend of tax collectors and sinners that he had a reputation, that they even attributed his actions to being a, a drunkard and a glutton. You know, if religious people are offended by how well you love sinners, you're in good company. Because there's always going to be religious people pointing fingers at you saying, I don't think you should be doing what you're doing. I don't think you should be hanging with the people that you're hanging with. But let me tell you something. If you want to get back to the fundamentals of ministry, back to the basics, you've got to be around sinners. You've got to hang out with sinners and you've got to share the gospel because Jesus is comfortable around sinners. Let me ask you, do you love sinners? Are you a friend of sinners? Look at what Paul says again in 1 Timothy 1.15. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. You have to accept this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And most of us are like, ah, I fully accept that. That's great. That's good. Of whom I am the worst. Do you fully accept that part of the statement? When you think about sinners, do you think about yourself of whom you are the worst sinner you know? I mean, think about this. No other person uh, closer to you knows all the thoughts, all the things that you say. I mean, you know everything that goes through your mind, and you know that you really are the worst sinner that you know because you know you. I mean, when you see yourself as the worst sinner, it's easier to approach those who need saving. When you take this as full acceptance, like Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. He needs to be around sinners, and I am the worst you're going to be more apt to approach those who need Jesus. But when you see yourself as spiritually superior, it's easy for you to avoid those who are spiritually sick. It's easy for us to pull back, to lose sight of the fundamentals of ministry because we think that we've achieved something that we're better than. But we are the worst sinners we know. Jesus loved sinners. 
Are you a friend of sinners? Look at what he says here in verse 16. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, these Pharisees, they show up and these guys, they were the keepers of God's law. And their main objective was to please God with their obedience to the law. What a great objective. I mean, isn't that kind of the objective we all have as Christians? Look, I want to follow God's word. I want to adhere to his law. And I want him to be pleased with how obedient I am. That was their motivation. Their motivation was to be obedient. And so they begin to set up all kinds of laws. And when they see Jesus being a witness and hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, they're thinking, I don't think you should be doing that. And Jesus informs them, well, why else would I have come? I've come for those who are spiritually sick. You see, Jesus didn't social distance himself from sinners. Jesus didn't treat sinners as if they had COVID-19. You don't see Jesus wearing a mask and gloves and saying, I'm not touching that sinner. They're disgusting. You know, you don't see that. You don't see him keeping a six-foot distance between him and sinners. You see him sitting at the table, reclining, being relaxed, being comfortable, being himself, because he genuinely loves them. Jesus loved them. He spent time with them. He even reclined with them. If this is true of the one we follow, then it should also be true of us. So let me ask you, do you love sinners? Or have you social distanced yourself from them? Do you find it more difficult to be natural and comfortable around them? Are you awkward or, or uh, ashamed Do you point fingers at people who do? I want to move us into a prayer prompt. I think now's a great time to respond. Let's talk about the fundamentals. Am I following God and his example of loving sinners? Maybe you should take a moment right now and just take an inventory of your life. We're going to pray for the next 20 to 30 seconds. Take a moment and pray. Ask God to show you how you can follow him and love others more intentionally and more authentically. Will you pray? Second thing I want you to see, ministry and fasting. We had ministry and fundamentals. Now we're going to continue through the chapter, ministry and fasting. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Read here with me. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but new wine 
is for fresh wineskins. Now, Jesus is addressing this idea of fasting. So let's real quick talk about fasting. Fasting is essentially giving up food or something else for a period of time in order to focus your thoughts on God. Now, kids, if you're listening, this is a great time, parents, for you to talk about the fundamentals of ministry, the fundamentals of following Jesus, the the core discipleship things, you know, prayer, fasting, reading God's word, spending time with God. Fasting is one of those things. And fasting is the intense effort to experience fellowship, intentional intimacy, and a renewed hunger with God. That's what fasting does. Fasting is, is never a thing we do to earn the favor of God or increase God's willingness to answer our prayers. We don't go to God saying, well, I'm going to do this so that you're in my debt and you have to answer my prayer request. No, fasting doesn't change God. Fasting changes us. Fasting allows us to recognize that our need for Christ is greater than our need for what's created. We realize that our spiritual needs are far greater than our physical needs. Fasting allows us to recognize our dependence and his provision. Maybe during this time of the COVID-19 pandemic, you've realized that you're not in control of your life, that you can't uh, make sure that all your provisions are met. And so you're recognizing that you need to be dependent upon God. Fasting is one of those things that we do where we say, I'm going to set this aside and I'm going I'm to make sure that my relationship with God is growing, that I'm dependent upon him. Now, it says this in verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So you got John's disciples who were probably fasting in in anticipation for the coming Messiah. And then you had the Pharisees, you know, the ones who wanted to follow the law, who were, you know, making sure that they were being obedient. And they're strictly observing the ritual fast that were prescribed in the Old Testament. So they're both fasting, but Jesus' disciples are not fasting. And so he tells this parable, and he says this. Um, He says this to them. Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Jesus tells this parable that, hey, why would they fast? I'm here now. Jesus is basically saying, now is not the time for fasting. Now is the time for rejoicing. Now is the time to throw a party just like Levi did. Now is the time to celebrate. Because if fasting is to experience fellowship with God, then they have, the right, they have him right now in the flesh. And if, if uh, fasting is for the intentional intimacy, then why fast? when they can intentionally draw close to Christ physically. And if fasting is for a renewed hunger for God, then let them feast on Christ right now because he is the bread of life. So he's saying, look, there's going to be a time where the Son of Man ascends into heaven and I go away and then that's going to be a time for fasting. So now, church, is a time for fasting. Now's the time to be setting aside something, maybe a meal or food or something else so that you can more concentrate on experiencing fellowship with God, being more intentional about being intimate with him and his spirit, and maybe just renewing a a spiritual hunger that maybe you once had that you've lost. And he goes on and he says this, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it and the the new from the old. And the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst, the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. 
Jesus is talking about this again in parables. In back in those days, they would put fresh wine, new wine, into a fresh goat skin um, sack or, or wine skin. And so they would do that, and the elasticity in that skin would expand as the wine fermented. And so it would expand out and, and be okay. But if you were to put new wine into an old wineskin that had already been stretched out, then when it begins the fermentation process, it's going to burst, and all's going to be lost. And so Jesus is talking to them about all their rituals and all the things they're doing and all these fastings, and he's like, look, the new wine of Christianity cannot be contained by the old wineskins of Judaism. Your old religious ways of doing things can't really contain what I'm doing. I'm doing something new. Look, look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus didn't come to refurbish you. He came to renew you. And so for many people, they just, they just want Jesus to clean them up a little bit, just, just kind of refurbish them, just kind of, you know, I'm going to add Jesus on to my life because I, I feel like I've got a really good idea of what pleases God and what rules to follow. And Jesus is saying, look, you can't, you can't put me in your old way of doing things. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees then and to the religious today that if you're trying to take the old works-based religion, your moralistic deism, and add Jesus to what you've always been doing without letting him completely renew you, then it will eventually burst. Your faith won't last because you just tried to add Jesus to your own ideas of Christianity or religion. And this, this is what happens all the time. Well, I tried Jesus. I tried to come to him so he could clean my life up and change some things about it, and it just didn't stick. It didn't last. Well, did you ever let him do something new in your life to totally change you? Jesus was never meant to be an add-on to our life and to our faith. Jesus is meant to be the author of our life and our faith. Look at what Hebrews 12.2 says, Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Let me ask you, is Jesus writing your story? Or are you still writing your story and just trying to add Jesus into it? Are you just trying to get Jesus to write off on it like, hey, you're a great author. You're doing a great job. Just keep, keep up the good work. Keep following the rules. Jesus is like, it doesn't work that way. If you want to get back to the fundamentals, back to the basics of ministry, it, it's sharing Jesus with those who desperately need to know him because you found him. It's also making sure that you keep intimacy with him, being one with him, being hungry for his presence in your life. Is he the author of your faith? Or have you just simply added him into your life? Maybe you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. And I would plead with you right now that you would say a simple prayer. Jesus, make me new. Make me a new creation. Fill me with your spirit. Change me. Make me more like you. Maybe this is the time where you confess your sins to him. Father, forgive me of my sins. Jesus, wash me clean. This is newness of life. This is what, why scripture says that you have to be reborn. This is renewing. This is not just refurbishing. I want to move us to our second prayer prompt of the morning. Fasting. Am I intentionally seeking intimacy with God? Am I hungry for his presence? Ask God if fasting is something he is calling you to do this week. Maybe you need to pause right now and ask yourself, do I need to pursue intimacy with God? Do I need to pursue fellowship with God? Do I need to have a renewed hunger for his presence in my life? Maybe you should pause and maybe you should 
fast this week. Why don't you take a moment and pray for renewed hunger for God? Will you pray? Thirdly, ministry and focus. We've had ministry and fundamentals, ministry and fasting, and now we're going to see ministry and focus. At this point, we see that the focus of ministry has gotten off, and the, the Pharisees, they need to get back to the basics. So let's read Mark chapter 2, 23 through 28. There's a difficult name here, and the name is Abiathar. And so I'm going to try to say it right when I get to that point, but uh, just don't hold it against me if I mess up. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to them, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread in the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, this is what Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What an interesting uh, conversation Jesus is having with the Pharisees. I mean, he's talking about this Sabbath, and the Sabbath was a day of rest. And and it's a, it's a day of rest of any form of work, and it was strictly prohibited. Like, you couldn't work on those days. It was, it was a day where not even the essential workers were allowed to work, right? You know, like, everybody's got the day off. Nobody's going to work. Everything's shut down. And so in order to keep this command, man's religious system was created, and it created a massive list of restrictions to keep you from breaking the commandment. And that list had become law to them. So these Pharisees, they'd come up with all these lists of rules to add on top of God's commandment so that they wouldn't break the commandment. And so this is what's happening. The Pharisees see the disciples walking, plucking these these, uh, things of grain, and they're starting to hold them accountable to all these laws that have been made up. So it says, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and they made their way. His disciples began to pluck heads of grain and eat them. So Jesus and his disciples, they're caught. They're caught eating at a restaurant and not observing social distancing laws, right? No, they're, 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 I'm kidding. They were caught traveling and reaping. And they weren't allowed to travel so far on the Sabbath. They weren't allowed to do any work in the field. And so they were saying, look, you're traveling and you're reaping. You're breaking these laws that were to keep them from breaking the Sabbath. Can you imagine these religious people are getting on to Jesus about breaking the Sabbath? I mean, they're actually telling God that he's not acting right on the Sabbath day. The Pharisees, the keepers of this law, begin to point out and point fingers at Jesus and his disciples. You're doing it wrong. You see, they're beginning to shift the focus off of God and the Sabbath and put the focus on rules and the observance of them. They're beginning to put man first rather than God first. Religious adherence to rules put more focus on man than God. 
This is what they're doing. They're making it all about how you live and how you act. And they're even imposing those rules on the creator of all things. You see, if we focus on the religious rules, our focus easily shifts from God's work to me and my work. And that, that's legalism. I love how Danny Aiken says this, few things are more destructive, seductive, and deceptive to a true and vital relationship with God than the deadly poison of legalism. It's destructive because it breeds death rather than life. It's seductive because it has the natural allure for the flesh that causes us to look to ourselves rather than to Christ for our spiritual status before God. It is deceptive because it makes us think we are spiritually elite when actually we are spiritually slaves. Legalism is raising to the level of biblical mandate and command what God has never commanded nor prohibited in his word. It is taking our traditions and preferences and imposing them on others as an act of spiritual superiority, even though the Bible does not make such practices universally prescriptive. It's saying, look, this is my preference. This is what I believe is right. This is how I live out my Christianity, and you should do exactly the same, even if Scripture doesn't say anything about it. Legalism is characterized by looking for the shortcomings in others rather than in oneself. This is what Danny Aiken says. It's saying it's taking the focus off of God and putting it on man and what man is doing and how man is following the rules. You see, ministry focus is never me-focused. It should always be Christ-focused and kingdom-focused. 1 Corinthians 1.31, Paul writes, So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We're not to boast in our works. We're to boast in God's work, what God has done through Jesus Christ. But one subtle way we make ministry me-focused is by getting lost in the weeds of work-based faith. When we begin to say things like, look at what I'm doing. Look at how I'm serving. Look at how I'm observing God's commands better than you are. I must be good because I did blank today. Legalism easily slips, slips in, and we need to get back to the basics of putting our focus on God and Jesus, rather than on our rules and how we adhere to them. I love what Jesus says here. He shuts them down. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God comes first, not man. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Look at what MacArthur says. Jesus dropped the bomb of all bombs on their self-righteous minds in verse 28. I am, he says, the sovereign ruler of over the Sabbath. I am the sovereign of this day. I designed this day. I am the creator. Doesn't John say that at the beginning of his gospel, everything made was made by him, and without him was not anything made? So it was he who ceased to work. It was he who rested. It was he who ordained this day to be blessed and separated from work. I am sovereign of this day. I am the interpreter of the will of God for this day. You do not rule the Sabbath. You do not set the standards of behavior for the Sabbath. I do. I interpret God's will and God's word. Yes, Jesus is the interpreter of God's will. He is the interpreter of God's word. He is the interpreter of God's law not man. This is what he says. He's like, look, you think you have all these rules. You think you know what you're doing. I'm the one who created all things, and I'm the one who rested. I get to choose what it's like. God comes first, not man. 
Get your focus off of how you follow rules and get your focus on Jesus, on who he is and what he's done. So the question is, does your Christianity focus on you? Does it focus on your rules and your ability to keep those rules? Does it focus on how well you follow those rules compared to others? If so, your focus has shifted off of Christ and onto you. If your faith is focused on you, you will be miserable. You'll be unhappy. You will be angry. You will be unfulfilled and enslaved to legalism. And you will push blame, shame, and guilt onto other people seeking out how to live out their faith, focused on Jesus. Because they will always be looking over their shoulders to see if you approve of their actions. I mean, ministry focus needs to get back to the basics. What has Jesus done? Not what am I doing? This is our final prayer prompt of the morning. Focus. Do I make my faith about me and what I'm doing over who Christ is and what he has done? Do I push legalism and law on others? Or do I push them to look to Christ? Why don't you take a, a moment and pray for God to reveal to you areas of your faith that you have made rules the focus over Christ. Will you pray? As we close this morning, let me remind you of these three words, fundamentals, fasting, and focus. Am I following God and his example of loving sinners? Fasting, am I intentionally seeking intimacy with God? Am I hungry for his presence? Focus, do I make my faith about me and what I'm doing over who Christ is and what he has done? Maybe we should get back to the basics. Maybe we should get back to the fundamentals. Maybe we should get back to intimacy and fasting and prayer. Maybe we should get back to putting our focus on God and what he's doing and not on what we're doing. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons 